Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. The sleep medicine subspecialty continues to grow with a record 165 physicians who matched to sleep medicine fellowship programs for the 2021 appointment year. Supply still falls short of demand, though. To talk with us today about efforts to increase the quality, diversity, and number of individuals entering sleep medicine fellowships is Dr. Scott Kutcher. Dr. Kutcher is Fellowship Director and Clinical Associate Professor in the Division of Sleep Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. He serves on the AASM's Sleep Medicine Fellowship Directors Council Steering Committee. Welcome to Talking Sleep, Dr. Kutcher. Thank you so much for having me, Seema. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. So tell me about the Council of Fellowship Directors. What is your charge? Well, we have two main missions. Our first mission is to uh, be a voice for the fellowship directors in sleep medicine to different uh, communities and different uh, coordinators and different uh, stakeholders. Our second is to get feedback from those stakeholders and deliver specific directives to our fellowship community. Um, as examples of two of those things uh, that have come up recently, uh, we were recently asked to comment on uh, what types of uh, residents in primary specialties may be eligible for sleep training who aren't already eligible. So for example, would it make sense for somebody who's, let's say, a plastic surgeon to be allowed to sit for and take the sleep boards and participate in the sleep fellowship? Uh, as another example of how we communicate to uh, the collective community of program directors, uh, we have in the past couple of years been asked to comment on uh, different steps to take and how to manage our response to COVID, specifically mm -hmm. things like uh, what to do with our interview cycles, uh, which have been virtual both last year and again, we recommended uh, having virtual interviews for this year. So uh, let me back up a little bit. I didn't realize that it wasn't really carved in stone for who was eligible for a sleep fellowship. And I, <laughs> I love your example of the plastic surgeon. You know, I think I've shared before that I have a friend who's a cardiologist and he also is boarded in sleep medicine. And when he first started, he felt um, kind of like an outsider. So it sounds like from a fellowship level, you're embracing inclusion of a lot of maybe less, less, maybe the ones that we don't think about as often as maybe being linked to sleep medicine. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, it's because sleep impacts so many different avenues of health, there are definitely so many potential um, people who might, you know, want to participate in a, in a sleep fellowship. Uh, and the question is, you know, if there's ever enough demand from a specific specialty, should we engage with that specialty and look at uh, working with them on uh, allowing their residents and their fellows to be eligible for sleep boards? So then by allowing more people to participate in fellowship programs, you obviously then need to sort of improve the awareness of sleep medicine, you know, as a field, but also how sleep impacts various other fields. Absolutely. And, and one of our missions has really been uh, increasing access across the board to knowledge and awareness of sleep medicine. Uh, we've seen just in our history, people become 
interested and intrigued by sleep medicine at different points in their training. Many people still don't have access to sleep medicine training during medicine or even during residency and come to it later in life. And so part of our goal is really to meet everyone where they are uh, and understand where their interests come from so that you know, we can engage with them at their level and see if they might be interested in pursuing a career in sleep medicine. Oh, so I love this because we've talked about the need to increase sleep medicine fellows. And recently we talked about some of the newer fellowship models, uh, which I think is making sleep medicine or a career in sleep medicine more accessible. So tell me about some of the initiatives that you have to increase the awareness of sleep medicine. Well, so some of the things we work on are, for example, uh, our Choose Sleep initiative is our primary one. And through that, we have things like uh, the ability to provide funds for uh, medical schools to have sleep medicine interest groups so that uh, we have uh, increased access to and increased uh, education in sleep medicine from early training. In addition to that, uh, we create uh, monthly seminars, right? monthly lectures that our current sleep fellows can participate in that can serve as a way for all sleep fellows to have access to the same types of training, but are also then logged and put online so that people who are interested in sleep medicine can then go ahead, go to that website and look at some of these online modules and learn about sleep medicine at their own pace. So this is all about increasing the pipeline, right? Well, it's about increasing the pipeline. That's one thing, but it's also about uh, providing kind of uniform educational experiences for all of our fellows for, for really critical topics. Mm. So the choose sleep then, that's not just geared toward medical students and residents? No, it's actually geared uh, primarily towards our current trainees. Oh. And as a benefit, uh, we also put it out there as outreach to medical students, residents, fellows, and uh, anyone else who might be interested. That is very cool. So you, you talked a little bit about COVID. So talk to me about how, um, so we know obviously it's changed our practices, but how has this impacted your world of graduate medical education? Well, COVID has turned uh, education upside down. I mean, uh, things really came to a halt in March. And what we quickly realized uh, and what was realized across sleep medicine training programs is that we had to reimagine how we train. Mm. So, of it, so much of it moved uh, you know, overnight to virtual training. You know, sleep labs were essentially shut down. For a period of time. And so, but we still had to teach our fellows about sleep studies. So we had to go in and try and find novel ways to approach training without necessarily generating new sleep studies. Barry Fields talked to us a little bit about this and, and he's talked um, kind of on both sides, right? Like how do you incorporate telemedicine into sleep medicine fellowship? So how do you use telemedicine to train your fellows? And then how do you train your fellows to use telemedicine? So telemedicine has turned out to be a powerful training tool. Uh, what we've realized from a clinical standpoint is that a lot of sleep medicine can be taken to the virtual realm with the ability to uh, you know, have remote monitoring with CPAPs, with uh, even just remote learning through sleep studies. We've really been able to take clinical education 
to the online world and, and really adapt our training needs um, pretty well. There's also the uh, you know, approach of online didactics. And I think mm -hmm. our, our trainees have really responded to that as well. Uh, we've been able to, for example, invite lecturers from all over the world who haven't had to incur the cost of travel. Uh, they've just had to, you know, coordinate the time where, you know, we've had people in Europe or in Asia give lectures, uh, you know, at their time. Uh, during uh, come to our lecture session virtually. And, uh, you know, I say our lecture days are now, I call them pajama days because everything's <laughs> still at home, uh, online learning. And our fellows have really enjoyed that kind of not having to worry about commuting, uh, to be able to spend more time, you know, at home with their families or pets. It's really, uh, I think, opened up uh, kind of new ways for us to envision training without necessarily losing much from that perspective. Well, and how cool to make those experts more accessible. Yeah, and uh, the, the uh, lecturers themselves have appreciated the ability to, you know, not have to travel necessarily in order to give a talk, to be able to do it remotely. It's become much more convenient, and I feel much less bad reaching out to people and <laughs> asking them of their time because I'm only asking for an hour. I'm not asking for a whole weekend. I love that. Less bad. I feel less bad. I love that there's already that implied guilt. Yes. Always. <laughs> is. So were y'all doing telemedicine with your fellow fellows, you know, pre-pandemic? So we were not doing any telemedicine with our fellows pre-pandemic. And that had so much to do with just reimbursement levels for training is that, uh, you know, uh, you couldn't bill for a fellow visit for, for any of the work fellows did, either for time or for uh, uh, their, uh, for their exam from a telehealth perspective. Huh. In addition, uh, and you still can't bill for a fellow's time um, for, uh, for, for uh, the time they spend in a telehealth visit. But um, what has changed, obviously, is that we can now uh, more readily bill for our own time during a telehealth visit. So we went from essentially zero to 100 overnight. Wow. You know, before the pandemic, our fellows would ask for telehealth as a, you know, a way to improve the program. And, and mm -hmm. the, the, the payer limitation was a limitation for us. Uh, and then uh, since then, our fellows have since really asked for, well, when can we do less telehealth? But <laughs> we're now, yeah, we're now struggling to find that balance, right, of what is what is the right balance of, of, of virtual medicine visits, of virtual training, and in-person visits? Too much of a good thing, huh? Yeah, well, we've definitely found value in both. So then I guess I'm kind of surprised to hear that you can't bill for a fellow's time for telemedicine. And, and I guess implied in that is that then they don't get to have that experience as much as maybe, you know, they would in, in, in the real world or sort of non-academic world. Um, how are you trying to overcome those reimbursement barriers? Well, ex that's exactly right. And it's, it's unfortunately, it's not representative of what their training would look like in the real world. Now, the way we can now overcome that is we can bill for some of our teaching time. Uh, it used to be that we were only allowed to bill for pure face-to-face -face time with the patient, but we can now bill for face-to-face -face time with the patient plus time spent working on that patient's case 
outside of the actual like clinical encounter with the patient. So if a fellow is presenting a case to me, I can count that time towards billing. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about upcoming changes to sleep medicine fellowships. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Your membership in the AASM demonstrates your commitment to advancing sleep care and enhancing sleep health to improve lives. Stay connected to the thousands of colleagues that share your passion for healthy sleep. Renew your membership today at AASM.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. I'm talking with Dr. Scott Kutcher about sleep education and training. So what are the changes that are coming for fellowships? I understand Match Day is moving. That's correct. This is our first year with a new Match Day. What happened is uh, we had changed from what was essentially our own match cycle to join the uh, internal medicine subspecialties match. Oh, wow. So this is, this is the match that if you're applying for cardiology, rheumatology, pulmonary critical care, that uh, the match cycle that you would apply in. Uh, and what we're hoping to gain, again, is an increase in, uh, ap- in number of applicants and diversity of applicants. Because it used to be that you had to decide early on, am I going to apply for a sleep medicine fellowship or am I going to apply for, let's say, a pulmonary critical care fellowship? Now you can essentially apply for both at the same time. Oh, that's very cool. Yes. And I think it'll help us in terms of, again, uh, increasing the number of applicants who uh, might have an interest in sleep medicine who might not have otherwise applied. Oh, that's a really good point. Because then they would they would sort of do their first shot. And then if they didn't get into the first one, then apply for sleep. Exactly. And so we might find um, because we still have unfilled positions uh, that those Trainees might reach out to programs outside of the match, and we're hoping to capture more of those people through mm. the match. I love that. I love this idea of being more receptive, you know, to different, to different, um, I, I suppose it's just making it more accessible, right? To just make it easier <laughs> to potentially apply for a slot and, and get a position. Yeah, it's making it more accessible. It's also partly, you know, understanding and realizing who are our applicants, you know, who mm. applies for a sleep medicine fellowship. It used to be, you know, a large number of people from pulmonary critical care, neurology, and then a small trickle from other places. The majority of my applicants now are from a primary care specialty and a primary care background. They are internal medicine, they are family medicine, and they are pediatrics. Oh, no way. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I think it's, this recognition, this realization that uh, we truly have this large volume of underserved patients, right, who can be captured by people who want to practice a mixture of primary care with an expertise in sleep medicine. So it sounds like we've got a lot of positive things for sleep medicine fellowship training, but I imagine that there are some threats too to training. Absolutely. We are always worried about uh, things that could compromise training. Uh, And I mean, first and foremost, there is still COVID. Uh, You know, I talked about the positive impacts of reimagining telehealth, but there's no question COVID has been an incredible burden on our trainees. Uh, You know, I see it in their applications in terms of 
you know, they have become really all of them intensivists during their primary training specialties, regardless of what they originally trained in. And that has really caused a lot of, I think, significant burnout that we're still kind of grappling with and we haven't fully come to terms with. What a really great way of describing it. I mean, that that kind of that really resonated with me that they, whether they wanted to or not, they sort of had this experience as being intensivists. Yeah. And um, it it really has, you know, I think been a struggle for a lot of them. And at the same time of being on the front lines of COVID management, you know, the what unfortunately, you know, the side effect of being virtual has been is less social interaction. You know, mm. uh, we are here a large program, but our fellows have had less time to interact with each other, less time to get to know each other. And so there is less of that connection both to each other and to the programs where they train. I never thought about that. You're right. That's got to be something that's that's challenging, right? Because, you know, sleep medicine fellowships are usually small anyway. And so then you do kind of bond with your co-fellows. Yeah. And they become very, very isolating over time. And so we've, you know, had to manage ways to kind of uh, work through that and connect with our fellows socially, you know, despite being separated. So that's, that's got to be challenging, you know. One of the things that, you know, I'm trying to think about how I'm internalizing this and thinking about my patients and how you, you know, with telemedicine, you know, it does take a lot more enthusiasm to engage your patient and you and you really do want to create a bond. You know, you look for commonalities and, and that sort of thing. Um, one thing I always talk about is how much I learn from my patients. You know, I think education is multidirectional, right? And so tell me what you've learned from your fellows. Well, I've learned to keep questioning, right, my own ideas, because our fellows will constantly challenge us. They'll constantly want to know the latest information, the latest knowledge. And so if, if I'm thinking reductively, if I'm thinking about the way things were when I trained, you know, a decade ago, I'm not really responding to their current needs. So I've had to you know, continuously kind of question my own beliefs mm -hmm. in order to, you know, meet them uh, with the challenges they presented to me. So then how has this worked with this new recall? Because, you know, the Phillips recall, because I think we're all learning. Right. And that's uh, a great segue back to what we talked about is uh, we, one of our choose sleep seminars, in fact, the next one coming up is directly addressing this Phillips recall. So one thing we want to do again on a national level is make sure that we are addressing these big issues uh, for all of our trainees in a uniform way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, on a on a local level, you know, this recall happened right before our new fellows came on. So they come on, you know, July 1st, and all of a sudden there's this complete change in what's happened in practice. And they are both learning how to do sleep medicine and learning how to manage a massive recall of one of our primary treatments at the same time. Wow. So it's baptism by fire then. Yes. And, uh, you know, the same was true uh, last year with, uh, you know, COVID uh, spiking in the summer, at least where we were here. 
Uh, and, um, you know, it seems that, uh, you know, we always have these kind of unique challenges that come through. And so we have to, as program directors, as educators, be, uh, be adaptive, right? Be able to have flexibility so that we can adapt to these new challenges, address them ourselves, and also learn how to address them so that our trainees are both learning, but also somewhat protected so they don't feel like they're the out there alone, you know, managing these patients by themselves, that they feel like they're supported. So was this almost a crash course in non-academic medicine? Yes, it was a, a quick <laughs> uh, learning. I mean, the learning curve for sleep medicine is steep anyway, in terms of learning what in insurance requirements are, what durable medical equipment, equipment companies are. There's so much third party kind of ancillary facts, ancillary factors that we don't control that, but that play a role in our, uh, in our management of our patients. And this was, you know, an extra kind of, uh, an extra serving, an extra uh, heaping serving of, uh, of that for our new trainees. I love it. It's this extra experience, right? When in quotation marks, this bonus experience <laughs> that they get to have. Exactly. But, you know, the business of medicine is part of uh, part of learning is part of training. And so, uh, you know, we want them to be themselves flexible and adaptable. So they need to learn how to respond to these challenges. You know what? That's so true. When I was an internal medicine resident, we had one noon conference on billing and that was it. You know, and then you sort of, you know, you, you hide out in training for as long as you can. <laughs> And you have your, you know, your own job and, and you really have to figure out the real world, you know, billing and coding and reimbursement and insurance and, you know, all the hoops that you have to jump through. Absolutely. And so, you know, part of that is, well, what does it mean to run a sleep lab? You know, how, how do you, you know, make sure your patients are being appropriately monitored? You know, what sort of parameters do you set about clinic visits, even things as simple as like late policies, where we, I feel like we're constantly having debates and discussions about, you know, because our fellows want enough time to work up the patients and learn and teach. But if a patient is coming from four hours away, uh, but they're 20 minutes late and we have a 15 minute late policy, how do we manage that versus, you know, accommodating the patient versus teaching the fellow? We have all this give and take that goes on. And, you know, my message is always, you know, I don't know that I have the perfect solution. What I want you to see is multiple different potential solutions and then use those to determine what you're going to do going forward. Well, I love that. You know, you kind of talked about this national lecture via the Choose Sleep platform where you're delivering sort of consistent educational materials. But then there's also that nuance, right? That personalization for what works with you and your style of practice and your clinic, you know, and your community. And, you know, that speaks to who we train, right? We have people who have already done a primary specialty, mm. right? And our, our choose sleep, you know, uh, program couldn't have a better name because people truly do choose sleep medicine. They choose it because they love it. They're passionate about it. They want to make a career out of it. And we want them to kind of use that passion and build off that passion uh, and, um, you know, take what they've already learned, you know, with the knowledge that they are essentially could be independent practitioners, right? Could be mm -hmm. our colleagues 
if not for the fact that they chose this field and chose to train with us. Mm. We we really want to respect that. So where do you see sleep education moving? I mean, do you see that there's more homogenization with education sort of with these on-demand modules? I mean, are you seeing more sleep woven into medical school curricula or residency? You know, have you figured out that sweet spot where we need to introduce sleep medicine to either med students or residents or, or what have you? So the sleep spot, sweet spot is to have sleep medicine available at every level of training, right, for anyone who might need that knowledge. And there is still a lot of work to do at every level, including on a sleep fellowship level, where people in, uh, you know, uh, during their course of medical school have more experience and more exposure to sleep medicine. People during their primary specialties have more experience and exposure to sleep medicine during fellowships as well. And not just that, but after they're done with their training, I see so many people who have graduated from their training, have been practicing for several years, and then become interested in sleep mm-hmm. medicine after, right? And so these are also people we want to capture. You know, the, the message really is there's no wrong time to become interested in sleep medicine. You know, I love that my mom is family practice and, you know, she's 76 and just had a birthday and still practicing, right? She's had patients since I was little. And um, as I have been doing sleep medicine, my mom has been learning sleep medicine. And so, you know, so she'll call me and ask a question about what she should, what she should tell her patient about the Phillips recall, for example. You know, so it's, you know, there's a plug there. It's never too late, right? It's, it's, uh, I think it's important for all of us to know. Absolutely. What we want to do is is to capture those people who become interested and maintain their interest. That's really what our goal is. So then getting back to this question about sleep education, do you see it more as sort of a central database for educational materials that all programs will utilize? I mean, where do you see this evolving? We definitely want to maintain program independence. We want to, you know, recognize that each program has their unique strengths and people go to specific programs to engage with specific faculty and to learn specific things. So we don't want to take that away. What we want to do is create kind of a unified guide and kind of, you know, essentially like uh, signposts and, and, and way marking so that during people's travels through sleep medicine, they feel anchored somewhere. They feel mm. like they have a home. Right, where they can come back once a month and see the new, um, they see the new lecture, and they all get the same type of training and something that's universally important to all trainees. Where they have, for example, uh, our um, uh, once a year boot camp for incoming fellows who can learn the fundamentals of sleep medicine, not to replace what each program does, mm. but, to, but so that each fellow gets a flavor of what it's like, you know, overall. So that's really what we're looking for. I'm totally jealous of Sleep um, Fellow Boot Camp. I remember when that came out, and of course, I was not a fellow then. I was like, oh, man, that looks like so much fun. I wish I could have done that. So having participated in, the, in it this past year, and, and of course, it was virtual and coinciding with our sleep meeting, it was you know, really a, a pleasure to see the kind of enthusiasm we got from you know, our presenters, from our, our course developers, and also from our, from our fellows who really 
you know, this was their first time being, for almost all of them, being immersed in sleep medicine and just having their just eyes open, you know, wide to this, this amazing field in front of them and just the, the enthusiasm that they had for their, for their year coming up. That's got to be rejuvenating, though. Every year. Every year, July 1st, I get rejuvenated. <laughs> and you're right about the timing of the recall. I hadn't, I hadn't considered that because I probably hit you a couple of weeks after you had new fellows. Yes. And so, you know, we had to have, uh, uh, you know, uh, meetings uh, with our you know, faculty about, you know, what the expectations would be for fellows regarding this recall. How do we have as uniform a message as possible? Uh, and how do we prepare them to kind of have talks with their patients who, uh, patients who they haven't met before, right? Who they've never met mm. and might be some of their first interactions. And now the patients are very concerned about what their device might be doing to them or doing to their health. That's a really good point, you know, because they haven't built up that, that trust. Yes. And so, you know, we uh, lean heavily on, you know, asking questions early on, you know, going to your faculty mentors, going to your, your faculty members, uh, seeking their feedback. Uh, and also, you know, the one thing, the other thing about it, uh, the telehealth business is it gives us a lot of flexibility to, you know, set up virtual appointments so we can have discussions with patients and just, you know, create more of that connection early on. I love that. So tell me, Scott, final thoughts? Yeah, my final thoughts are really, um, you know, getting back to the point that there's there's no wrong time to become interested in sleep medicine. And we are all, if we are practicing sleep medicine, we're all educators. You know, I, so many of the applicants I received for sleep fellowship, they became interested, uh, you know, not from some amazing lecturer, from some world-class lecturer, but from you know, a clinic they had with a, uh, you know, uh, a provider who might be an adjunct faculty or might be, you know, not even uh, necessarily a, a, a have an academic appointment. The, uh, you know, seek out uh, that training from that from that sleep provider and just become uh, amazed and uh, fall in love with sleep medicine uh, and then decide to do sleep fellowships themselves. So, you know, for, for all of our sleep uh, practitioners that, that, you know, we, we all have a role in, uh, in training in teaching, you know, whether we know it or not. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Seema. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.